0: Politics without the soap opera with unfiltered constitutional conservative truth. The conservative review with Daniel Horowitz. And welcome back, fellow American patriots and Minutemen standing at the ready to forge a counter revolution to the invasion, inflation, and indoctrination, and all that affects our life, liberty, and property. If you actually believe we are in a fight and not just a fake war of rhetoric on social media. Well, this is probably your only source of independent conservative news and views. Daniel Horowitz, your host, back here today for Tuesday, January 23rd. And believe it or not, I am kind of in a good mood for once. I don't know how long it will last. And the reason is because we have another opportunity. Another inflection moment was created yesterday that for once is built upon a perfect dividing line of good and evil over something extremely substantive that I've been talking about for more than a decade now. And we have an opportunity to plow new ground on an issue that is a force multiplier. And it doesn't just rope in the border and immigration, but the issue of judicial supremacism. And finally, we could actually debate something and talk about something That doesn't fully revolve around one human being, pro or con. Although it does kind of expose yet another failure of that administration from 2017 to 2021 to get results. But the main point is we actually have a bunch of attention harnessed, often for the first time, for those in the back that, you know, have no worldview shaped beyond one or two issues or one individual or pre-2016. And that is, again, the issue of judicial supremacism. So I'm not kidding you. I, I, I'm i dead serious. I was finishing editing a column, my next column at The Blaze, and it was about the fact that, I mean, I've done a couple of these the last couple of months. We have a fake conservative Supreme Court, Okay. So, officially, we have six out of the nine were appointed by Republican presidents. Even if you want to say, okay, Roberts is really with the left, but we should still have a five to four majority. Yet, on so many critical issues, really, really critical issues, every one of the three Trump appointees, Barrett, Kavanaugh, and Gorsuch, do not measure up to Thomas and Alito to varying degrees. And sometimes it's all three, but usually they each take a turn screwing us on an issue. Sometimes it's one, sometimes it's two out of the three, sometimes it's three out of the three. Generally, Gorsuch is better than the other two, but he has a gaping flaw that we're going to talk about um, related to the transgender issue, which is, I mean, that's a big, big issue. It's something you can't forgive or overlook. So I was in the middle of writing a column how, you know, the conservative... Supreme Court strikes again and and screws us with the shadow docket by refusing strategically to take up appeals from our guys when lower courts um, issue terrible rulings. And then and, – and this was – so this was about a tranny case. And then right as I was finishing it, you had the ruling come out – again, it wasn't a merits ruling, but nonetheless very consequential – reversing the Fifth Circuit – and allowing the Biden administration border patrol officials to come in and cut the razor wire put up by Texas DPS to block the invasion. And in this case, it was Amy Barrett who joined the four other liberals to create a 5-4 majority on that reversal. So this is yet another example of how not only not only is this Supreme Court overturning or or refusing to grant our appeals. So I've said this many times. If you, I don't believe in judicial supremacism, and that's what we're going to talk about today. But if you do and you believe that lower courts could rule over other branches and their word, no matter how wrong it is in terms of a legal or constitutional interpretation, is is the final say and universally binding and self-executing over the other either branches of the federal government or the state governments. So then the Supreme Court certainly has an obligation to expeditiously take up that appeal, right? If you, if you have a lower court creating a novel right to therefore enjoin a very common sense bill passed by a red state legislature, well, if you're a conservative Supreme Court, you have an obligation upon the first opportunity to take that up. Yet they're not doing that. And that that was the, you know, the subject of my piece. And then, in this case, it's worse. Even when we get a good circuit ruling, you know, the Fifth Circuit is is really the most conservative. Generally, the Fifth, Eighth, and Eleventh are the best circuits. The other ones are really pretty bad or really bad. So increasingly, they are reversing the Fifth Circuit. We talked about that with the abortion pill. Uh, with the Texas ban on that, and uh, you know they partially reversed the Fifth Circuit, or at least granted the appeal to potentially reverse it. So this is a big, big trend. And again, this is something, it's an opportunity for us to finally focus on the 800-pound gorilla in the room. That the left has been transforming our society, social transformation without representation, for decades through the unelected federal courts. And we have a problem that we can't even strive to do good because, as we talk about so often, we don't really have red states. But the few good things they do, in this case, it had to get so bad, so, so bad, shocking the consciousness of several million a year coming through Texas, invading the border, for, for Greg Abbott to finally, finally take it seriously. So, you know, they put up the razor wire and they... And this was an eagle pass. They blocked the feds from coming in. And then the feds sued in district court and won. But then the Fifth Circuit reversed that. And then now the Supreme Court is reversing the Fifth Circuit while the lower court decides on the merits. And we are at an inflection moment where finally all my colleagues are like, oh my gosh, a court could just declare an invasion and then prevent a state from doing that? you know Greg Abbott should say no and i was thinking wow i mean this is a great teachable moment if we could finally unite behind something um that is not just focused on one man this is one of the most enduring things we can do because remember what are we what are we striving towards what are we trying to do we're trying to create oases within red states to you know follow is somewhat of our founding vision, our founding values. But the problem is, even if we would work to elect great governors and legislators in these states, the federal courts will nullify everything they do. Now, the federal courts don't, don't have the power of nullification, but the perception and what conservatives have accepted for so long is exactly that. And I have been warning forever, and I wrote a book, again, long before, not long before, but before Trump became president, but I was talking about it long before, and before we ever knew, you know, what was going to happen. And I used the issue of immigration in particular to drive home the point. I said, "Look, I said, name me anything you want to do. If we believe in judicial supremacism, we're done. We'll never be able to get beyond that. Okay, we'll we'll, we'll never be able to strive for a better day." And back then, we we're coming off of. It was towards the end of the Obama administration. We were miserable. And, you know, typically the pendulum swings back and forth. So this was before the primary really took off when I wrote the book. Um, Maybe Trump was kind of on the scene, but not really big. And, you know, the understanding was that the pendulum would swing back. Republicans would get into office. And I said, look, I said, there's going to be an opportunity to fill vacancies in the Supreme Court. And I said, rather than playing the judicial supremacism game by saying, all right, you're right, liberals. The, the you know Whatever the courts say is the final rule, but we're going to get our guys. I said, you're never going to win that game. So it's better to take your chance, take your opportunity, and shake hands with the left and say, look, you're worried about our nominees. I'm worried about yours. Let's, you know, at the time, what I advocated was jurisdiction stripping, where Congress has the ability to strip the courts of certain jurisdiction over certain social issues, we advocated immigration, that they should be decided by the political branches. But it's more than that. Even without Congress taking it out of their jurisdiction, what we're going to talk about today is the courts don't have the final say when they're wrong. The Constitution has the final say. So this is a perfect opportunity for Greg Abbott to say no, and I would argue you know, all the Republican governors in a perfect world would get together, they would all send even more National Guardsmen, and they would all sign a pact together that we are abiding by the Constitution, as I'm going to talk about a little bit later, and we will say no. If we do that, this will be the most substantive thing we can do of our lifetime. Remember, I I, I cannot overstate the importance of this. The entire world is crushing Israel over this judicial reform package. If you remember, they helped the opposition defeat Netanyahu's um, judicial reform. The reason why this is such an important issue is because they want to rule. Imagine if the WEF got to decide what, what would happen. So, what they do is just appoint, you know, influence the judges, and then that's it. So, you could, you know, strive to win elections. It won't matter. Won't matter. And that's what they do in Israel, where, where it's even worse, where not only is it judicial supremacism, but the judges get to pick their own replacements. And, you know, that's a whole thing there. But that is a very important issue. But even our degree of judicial supremacism is way, way too much. So I want to first build this from its foundation, go on to the Trani case, and then come back to the the border business. Um, and the invasion and and the opportunity that we have before us. I'm going to read to you a passage from the introduction of my book in 2015 about judicial supremacism called Stolen Sovereignty, How to Stop Unelected Judges from Transforming America. You know, some of the citations are old, but it's still relevant even nine years later. But uh, again, keep keep in mind the backdrop of the time. We were striving towards a Republican winning the presidency with a Senate, a GOP Senate, after two terms of Obama. But keep in mind that this applies to red state America too, meaning wherever we could obtain popular power with the elected branches of government to even get good Republicans in, which we almost never do, or get a good party in, and achieve good things, the courts are going to screw with every last thing we do. So I mentioned, we're often told that elections have consequences, and if we don't like what is happening to our government and society, we must do a better job changing hearts and minds, raising money, campaigning, and winning elections. But after winning two smashing victories in the previous midterm elections, remember that was 2010 and 2014 at the time, conservatives have painfully learned that elections don't matter, at least not when conservatives win. Much of the disenfranchisement has been exacerbated by the complete corruption and treachery of the Republican Party at leadership level, okay? And and by the way, no, notice this is me talking long before Trump. Okay, so some of us were actually using this rhetoric <laughs> before it was cool. Okay, so, so some of these cool kids that think they know what anti-establishment politics is, um, but then they actually go empower it, um, they have a lot to learn. But let me continue <clears throat> those narratives are well documented by many conservative authors and indeed are the relentless focus of my daily <laughs> and weekly columns at conservative review but for the purpose of this book i like to focus on an even more uncomfortable reality confronting american conservatives the unelected branches hold the keys to our future and most of what we do through the electoral sphere is bound to fail if we don't build immediate momentum to rein in the courts and the bureaucracy on the most critical, consequential, and foundational issues of our time. Conservatives could succeed in electing a constitutionalist in the mold of Ted Cruz or Mike Lee to every House and Senate seat, and it will do very little in staving off the next bull march towards a post-constitutional Sodom and Gomorrah. In fact, with the morally, intellectually, and legally dyslexic decisions implemented by lawless courts and bureaucrats concerning the most foundational issues, values, and principles of our nation in recent years, I seek to prove that we are already living in a modern-day Gomorrah. The same tepid modus operandi of the past from conservative politicians will not suffice to deliver us from the clutches of this debauchery. We have reached rock bottom. We have lost our sovereignty as individuals, as residents of states, and as we shall explore in the following chapters as an independent nation. Okay? So I was literally building it around the, the, the title stolen sovereignty is a double entendre. The courts are stealing our ability to uh, govern as, as you know, self-govern as individuals, uh, state sovereignty, but also national sovereignty with mandating, you know, open borders. I was literally talking about this very issue. Pick your favorite conservative issue and your preferred policy solution and understand that the courts will toss out many of those policies. There is a standing army of legal professionals waiting to assail religious liberty, create new rights for criminals, and invalidate immigration enforcement acts at the drop of a hat. Furthermore, then entrenched bureaucrats have grown so strong and have placed much of the left-wing agenda on autopilot, making it arduous for the overworked members of Congress and their staffs to properly exercise oversight and ensure that the executive branch is faith- faithfully executing the law of the land. And that's for my introduction. Again, you could still get it at Amazon, Stolen Sovereignty. And obviously, I would argue now that we are done even with Congress, clearly, And the best we could hope for is red states. But pick your top 10 medical freedom, immigration enforcement, certain criminal law. Um, I guarantee you, the courts will throw out everything we want to do. And especially the things that legitimately do kind of push the edges of state power, which we have to do given what the feds are doing. If we abide by this notion of judicial supremacism, that the courts have the, you know, not just a say to rule in individual civil and criminal cases and offer an opinion, but that that is self-executing on other branches of government and universally binding on non-parties to the case as if it's like a statute or, or a presidential veto, then we're done. We are completely done. And I wrote that, by the way, not thinking that Ruth Bader Ginsburg would die in office. That we would get not only the ability to replace Scalia, which is really a lateral you know, movement. You're not getting better. In fact, we went backwards. But we had Kennedy and Ruth Bader Ginsburg retire. I thought we weren't going to get that. It could be if I thought that, I wouldn't have written the book. Wow, maybe then you are going to change the court. But fundamentally, I always warned you weren't. You weren't going to change it. By the way, even Trump, it's, it's interesting, just a couple days ago, Trump gave a speech in I believe it was in New Hampshire and he said he said he and he very correctly diagnosed the problem. He said when there are democrat appointees they go out of their way to hurt you, but if a republican appoints a judge they go out of their way to show that they're not biased. And he's right in that sense that they always look towards political outcomes. So they don't want to look like they're siding against the Biden administration too often. They don't look at the uh, outcomes I, I'm saying the jurisprudence, the legality, the Constitution uh, logic they, they they look at outcomes and and but the opposite. see the Democrats don't look at the law, they look at the outcome what is auspicious to the Democrat political um, des- desiderandum, their goals their you know what they want to ultimately achieve. But when it comes to Republicans, they look at the outcome like, oh my gosh, we can't look like we're siding with the right too often. Trump is absolutely correct, except the problem is, and again, nobody will hold him accountable. We warned, and I warned bitterly at the time. We, we talked about this for years. We said, look, there's two things you need to change about the courts. Number one, we need to slay the dragon, this notion that uh, the courts are supreme over the other two federal branches and even the state branches of government. And number two, if you're going to play the game of obsessively, you know, focusing on getting in better judges, you need to understand, stop with these stealth nominees that aren't offensive to the left, but then we just hope that they'll, you know, somehow find a backbone on the bench. You, if you have control of the Senate, which they did during that era, in fact, they had control of the Senate all four years. It was the House that they lost. So for judicial noms, uh, Republicans had plenary power to run the table. The Democrats are going to fight you anyway, like they did with Kavanaugh, who is a jerk. You may as well get someone who has an open paper trail of saying the things we believe in, not just kind of being a stealth nerd. So Trump put out a list of nominees because he wasn't trusted at the time among conservatives. He put out a list. Well, he got three picks and none of them were on the list. You know, we were very suspicious of Gorsuch. I outright opposed Kavanaugh. And Amy Barrett at the time of Kavanaugh, we said she was better than Kavanaugh. But then when the third vacancy came up, we already had COVID and we you know, we talked about it at the time. I'm not I'm not just being a Monday morning quarterback. You guys remember that she had a twenty twenty ruling upholding Illinois lockdown, joining Diane Woods, who was at the time or Diane Wood, the um, chief judge of the Seventh Circuit, uh, Bill Clinton appointee, like that's a big problem. That's a big problem. So Trump didn't understand the difference between a Clarence Thomas and a, uh, you know, a, a Brett Kavanaugh or an Amy Barrett, and DeSantis did. And you know, DeSantis people attacked him, but he was on Hugh Hewitt's show last year during the campaign, and he said, look, you know. I'm going to be very keen on the idea that it's not just enough to just pick a, a better than Democrat judge; that we need m- more people like Thomas and and fewer like like Kavanaugh. So, but again, outcomes don't matter. This is the joke. This was the biggest accomplishment, and yet we're getting crushed on every single issue. So, th- there, there there's a lot of this, and let's just review where we are. Um, last week, last week. The Supreme Court, again, denied the appeal, meaning they allowed a bad lower court ruling to stand, forcing the state of Indiana, in this case, the Metropolitan School District of Martinsville, Indiana, to allow – basically, there was a girl who uh, thought she was a boy, and this was at our Wooden Middle School – believes she was a male and wanted to be granted access to the male bathroom, the male sports teams, and be referred to in school as a male. And the district judge and the Seventh Circuit ruled that um, unbelievably, the the Title uh, Title IX right of the Education Amendments Act of 1972 includes transgenderism. Okay, so what was written in 1972, where not a single Republican or Democrat could have conceived of this, uh, they're covered by that as well as the Equal Protection Clause of the Fourteenth Amendment, written in 1867, uh, includes transgenderism. Okay, so that's you know you know because equal life, liberty, property for freed black slaves somehow translates into women being able to demand that the state treat them like a man and and vice versa. So they issued an injunction, and. Basically, now we have, despite Republican control of Indiana and at least Republican legislatures in Wisconsin, uh, the states of Illinois, Wisconsin, and Indiana, which is under the auspices of the Seventh Circuit, has to allow transgender bathrooms or, you know, the switch hitters in the bathrooms. We can't even do that. Um, So you would say, Daniel, that is insane. That is utterly insane, Right. Right, I mean that that is, that is crazy. There's no way even a marginally moderate Republican appointee to the Supreme Court could allow such a radical right, a Fourteenth Amendment right, to use the other gender's bathroom to stand in court, and they're going to expeditiously take up that appeal and grant cert to to the you know uh, school district to overturn it. But no, they didn't grant cert. Now, as you well know, sometimes the dissenting judges lodge a complaint and lodge their dissent. Sometimes they don't. In this case, they didn't. But what we know from the past is that it is some mix of the three Trump appointees that haven't wanted you know, to, to take this up. We have seen it in the past. And when it comes to the transgender issue, it's really all three of them have been bad. Now, this is particularly corrupt because sometimes the excuse is, well, let's let it stew a little bit more in the lower courts before we take it up. Okay, let's wait until we have a circuit, a circuit split. Now, again, I would argue that, again, if you believe in judicial supremacism, that you don't believe a state has the right to ignore a bad uh, lower court ruling – as a conservative judge in the Supreme Court, then you have an obligation to take that up. You can't, have, you can't have the popular will of the people being subverted for years on end when you know it's a bad decision, right? If you agree with the decision is one thing, but if you don't agree with it, you can't say, well, but let's let it stew in the courts. No, you have to take it up. But in this case, you did have a circuit split and they still didn't take it up in 2022. The 11th Circuit in Florida that oversees Florida, it's a more conservative circuit, they ruled the other way around. So you have the fourth and the seventh ruled that you have a, you know, title nine and, and 14th amendment right to transgenderism. And uh, the other, um, the 11th circuit ruled not. And, and, they, and they still wouldn't take it up. They still would not take it up. So Justices Kavanaugh and Barrett have had a history of, um, you know, not granting cert to cases like this. But in this case, it's worse than that. Diane Wood, who, by the way, is the same judge in the uh, um, COVID case, in the Seventh Circuit, she wrote, she built her ruling off of Gorsuch's Bostock opinion. Now, folks, in 2020 at the time, in the spring of 2020, I guess it was June, when that ruling came out, I literally warned this would happen. So what was that ruling? Basically, unbelievably, I mean, again, at some point, the buck has to stop with the men. I'm sick of the excuses. Nobody in conservative legal cir- circles, the real conservatives, ever heard of Gorsuch. He attended an Episcopalian church that was very liberal. He was, he was an obscure judge on the 10th Circuit. He ruled in Bostock that Somehow, Title VII of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, that's the employment non-discrimination, you can't discriminate against blacks or someone based on their sex, meaning, oh, you're a female, I'm not going to hire you, somehow that incorporated, in his words, sexual orientation and gender identity. Okay? So, Diane Wood of the Seventh Circuit, a Democrat judge, made a very simple extrapolation, and she's not wrong. Well, if you're going to say that the 1964 act that when it says sex, it means this, well, the 1972 Title IX Amendment, Education Amendments Act should also mean that, and you can't discriminate in the bathrooms. I mean, she's not wrong. It's the same garbage. And I warned about it. Um, uh, Justice Alito, in his dissent in Bostock, warned about that as well. And he's like, this is not just limited to employment. This is going to be in every other context. And indeed, that is exactly what has happened. And lower courts have cited Bostock, um, both state and federal courts, uh, you know, a, a numerous times since 2020. And this is the legacy of Gorsuch. Gorsuch was very good on COVID. it's good on a lot of issues. But this was very, very bad. Very, very bad. But this is part of a broader trend. Justices Barrett and Kavanaugh have consistently allowed lower courts to demand red states promote a right to transgenderism, while also allowing states to regulate our bodily autonomy for COVID. This is what is so indefensible about Barrett and Kavanaugh. Gorsuch didn't have the hypocrisy because he was, you know, he was good on COVID. But Barrett and Kavanaugh, if you remember, both at the state and federal levels, they basically said, yes. The state has full police authority. They either said it or often just, you know, they didn't grant the appeal. And they, they they surreptitiously allowed bad lower court rulings saying this to stand. I just want to be exact in my language. But it's the same result that states could just, you know, rape your body, your breathing. You can't do anything. Oh, but you have a right to a drag show. You have a right to balls cutting. You have a right to access the other, uh, you know, the other uh, genders bathroom. Let's not forget in December, Neil Gorsuch, so they keep switching off. Gorsuch and Barrett, along with Roberts and the three Dem appointees, denied an appeal from those challenging that wicked Washington state law. If you remember, it banned counseling of kids who who suffer from gender dysphoria to counsel them to be normal. So in other words, you could counsel a kid to cut his balls off and you could actually cut his balls off but you can't counsel them to be straight and normal. And that literally violated the First Amendment rights of of doctors, of counselors. So you had a bad Ninth Circuit ruling. And, And again, there was a circuit split there as well. Maybe it was also the 11th. I'm forgetting exactly. Don't quote me on that. But there was a circuit split, and they wouldn't take it up. In that case, Kavanaugh did side with you know, Alito and Thomas. but So there was Gorsuch and Barrett. They switch off. A month prior, in November, it was Kavanaugh and Barrett that denied Florida's appeal after lower courts and a trend that we're seeing in many states enjoined its, its law banning drag shows in front of minors. So again, according to Kavanaugh and Barrett, you have a fundamental right to nudity in front of minors, sodomy in front of minors, but you don't have a right to be mask-free on your face. Or put another way, a state has police power to gag your mouth, but a state doesn't have police power to prevent nudity in front of children. And and and, and a reminder, this is in the wake of the Dobbs opinion that reestablished... Um, deeply rooted in history and tradition as the standard for creating an unenumerated fundamental right. But again, it's not about consistency, it's about outcomes, and they don't want too many conservative outcomes. At the same time that some of Trump's appointees have allowed the creation of a right to transgenderism, they have denied basic bodily autonomy rights. In November, again, the same month, Kavanaugh and Barrett joined with the liberal justices and denied an appeal from New Jersey nurses who were forced to get the COVID shots to work in state hospitals. Can you imagine the juxtaposition there? In 2021, if you remember the same pair denied emergency injunctive relief to New York healthcare workers who are being deprived of their religious liberty exemptions from the uh, vaccine mandate. And of course, we all remember Kavanaugh, this was only Kavanaugh, Cross with the five liberals in uh or or the the four liberals um in upholding the Biden CMS healthcare mandate. If you remember, they struck down the the contractor one, but so this was, you know, you could say, well, states have more authority. I mean, they don't, but um, this was even the federal healthcare mandate. Kavanaugh upheld it. I mean, and again, I'm just scraping the surface for you today. The amount of fundamental issues that the three Trump appointees have screwed us on are shocking. But our base knows none of this because outcomes don't matter. Outcomes don't matter. You, you know, someone someone recently criticized me on on Twitter, a colleague, and said, "Um, and to be fair, I." kind of picked the debate with him he said something I responded he responded back to me um, but he said something like very sarcastically well Daniel not everyone's as smart and as informed as you and <laughs> I didn't understand what that meant because it's like I, I understand that I, I I genuinely don't blame people for not knowing who's who and what's what, following the different justices, what they say and and do, or knowing the nuances of Elise Stefanik and which member of Congress is privately screwing with us. But that is the job of you. You're right. Your average person who's a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, an engineer all day and I'm doing politics all day I'm obviously going to know more about that but that is your job that's what, that is what a conservative vanguard is that's what it means to have movement leaders and thought leaders so I might be unique among your average person but I should not be unique among those that get paid and often very handsomely I must say to do this full time okay I, I mean I always say this very humbly but I mean it you guys have, a, you know, much better jobs than me. You guys do real things in the world. I don't. I've worked in politics my whole life. But I figured if I'm going to do that, at least be good at it. At least know the subject matter. Know the policies. Know the history. Know the law. Know the who's who and what's what. The art of politics and the amalgamation of factors and putting it together. The continuity of observations. But to be a dumbass and do this for a living, it's the blind leading the blind. So it's proving my problem. What, so 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 I'm the problem because I know too much about these people? What am I supposed to say? So that's the story. By the way, the Supreme Court, with three Trump appointees on, has now sided with the Biden administration in 11 of its 14 emergency applications for relief, often reversing the conservative Fifth Circuit. So it's not just the fact that the lower courts are screwing with the red states and the Supreme Court is kind of just tacitly allowing it to stand indefinitely. It's that the hypocrisy, when the shoe's on the other foot and we finally get a good lower court ruling and the bad guys appeal to the Supreme Court, They'll grant their appeal or either on the merits or they'll, they'll, uh, you know, at the preliminary level, they'll reverse the uh, injunction or whatever the, the order from the lower court. So that's what's happening there. So, folks, we're not winning this. We are, if you think, so finally the message is getting out to these guys like, oh, wow, maybe we can't rely on the Supreme Court to save Trump from his legal problems. Well, no kidding. Some of them did recognize that yesterday. So I'd be curious to know what is their solution? What is their solution both to save Trump and the country? Because Supreme Court ain't going to help you with those legal proceedings. So if they don't help you, you're going to get the rulings and motions to stand from the lower courts, which are horrible, like the D.C. Circuit is horrible. So how are you going to win an election like that? They don't have an answer. Same way they don't have an answer, nine and a half months out, when Trump is still, over the weekend, pimping his COVID re- response and the vaccines, you don't even privately, much less publicly, gently urge him to the right. How do you ever expect him to move to the right? But, you know, that, that's for another day. But anyway, this brings us back to what happened yesterday with Texas's border fence and the razor wire. Okay? Here's where we are. Here's where we are. Um, Basically, we're at the point where I think we could reach critical mass in finally understanding the role of the Supreme Court. You understand that the, the, the founders purposely did not give the court system a police force, it's technically under the auspices of the executive branch of government. So if it's a federal court, it's the marshals under DOJ, and if it's the state courts, it's you know the state troopers, but that's not run by the courts, it's run by the executive branch. And they did that for good reason, because at the end of the day, they're not elected. I mean, at least at a federal level, they're not elected, and they were supposed to be comparatively the weakest branch of government. IBM v. Microsoft. You have some sort of um, uh, patent infringement case. You have some sort of bankruptcy case or an individual civil or criminal case. That is where courts kind of reign supreme. That's their domain. But when they grab an individual case that either has national civilization, social, societal, national security implications to the whole of the people, as Lincoln said during his inaugural address... Or if it's something about the disagreement between other branches of government, they can render an opinion, and it may be the right opinion, but it's not self-executing. So let's say you have a classic case of Congress versus the executive branch fighting. It's not like, oh, well, let's just take it to court. They might be able to, in the right level of standing, issue an opinion, but it's not a veto. Right? Congress passes a law, and the president could sign it or veto it. That that That's black and white in the Constitution. It doesn't go to the courts to get a veto. When they say the courts struck down, they don't strike down anything. They don't do that. They render an opinion. And if ultimately it violates the Constitution, you have an obligation to push back against it. Through the powers that you have in the other branch. Now, depending on the issue, sometimes each branch has more influence to to break it. In this case, Texas has control of the area, and they want to keep out Border Patrol. The federal courts, meaning the district judge and the Supreme Court, are saying you better let them in so they can go and cut the wire. Well, um, you know, will will Brett Cav, will will Amy Barrett get off the, you know, her bench and walk down to Eagle Pass, Texas, and cut the wire? No. So she doesn't have that power. She doesn't have a police force to do that either. Texas controls it, and they could just say no. Now, as of this moment, from what I'm hearing from my sources, so far they haven't let them in, and that's good news. We'll we'll see. Hopefully this will hold up. But this is a monumental moment, not just on immigration, which is important but on every other issue that if we are ever going to have free orderly ordered liberty in red states that comport with our values we are going to have to break the body politic and society into this new paradigm and and just completely vitiate this notion that the courts are the sole and finder arbiter expositor of constitutional interpretation they have an avenue, they're one of them, but where they are remarkably wrong, not only can you push back, but you have an obligation. Remember, every branch of government swears, you know, if you're a um, a, a member of the, of the executive branch, or if you're a state official, you swear the same oath to uphold the Constitution. In the state, you also uphold the state Constitution, but you do include in that the federal Constitution. You cannot violate your oath. We don't live with judicial supremacism. We live with constitutional supremacism. Now, during the time of our founders, so you didn't have people thinking, okay, you have a state has the power to gag your mouth, but they don't have a power to stop nudity, right? Right? You know what I'm saying? Or, or, or a state has the power to block other state American residents during a quarantine from coming into your state, as Greg Abbott did to Louisiana in March 2020, but he doesn't have the power to block foreign invaders. You know what I mean? You did not have this debauched mindset. They fundamentally agreed on everything, and that's why slavery was really the first thing to trigger the judicial supremacism debate between Lincoln and Douglas over whether it's the fi- final law, because that was the only time they disagreed before before slavery or except for slavery it was these nerdy issues there's a lot of things that it takes legal scholarship that there's no that there's no bad players it's like you know even between us we might have a disagreement over you know the contours of power there's a lot of fascinating um intellectual debates over the bounds of constitutional powers of each branch and where you know even if you're a right winger it's not clear cut and and so our founders you might find statements from certain founders – I've talked about this over the years in the 1790s – where they might have wished for the fact that the judiciary would be trusted and respected and we would expect their – we would respect their opinion. But that was not legally binding in that sense that it's over the other branches of government if they disagreed. So, you know, if they would come in and say you have a right to, um, you know, balls cutting – but you don't have the right to bodily autonomy, you know, they would say, uh, no, I mean, they're not going to listen to that court. So, for example, you know, during the time of our founders, the federal courts come in and tell a local school district, you have to allow a boy into the girl's bathroom. What what do you think they would do? They're like, no, I mean, we control that. You don't have a police force, we're going to do what we want. And that's exactly what needs to happen here. So let's plug this into the border situation with Texas and how how this plays out. So here's the deal. Obviously, let me just make this very clear before we even get into the Constitution. Even the Constitution is not a suicide pact, okay? Now, we don't have to come on to that because, as we're going to say, the Constitution is on our side, okay? But, so so that's just making the Supreme Court a suicide pact, which it certainly is not. But the Constitution is not a suicide pact in and of itself. So there is no result that could ever compel a state to allow millions of people per year in, you know, if you want to twist a constitutional provision. Okay, so even if you had that. But in fact, it's the opposite. The compact clause, Article 1, Section 10, Clause 3, No state shall without the consent of Congress lay any duty of tonnage, keep troops or ships of war in time of peace, or engage in war, or engage in war unless actually invaded or or in such imminent danger as will not admit of delay. It literally reads it out in there. So we're talking about raising troops and ships and engaging in war. So in other words, when they're invaded or notice, there's a clause, clause even short of invasion, but imminent danger where you can't delay. And here, clearly, it's been going on, and and there, you know you can't wait because the feds are. Meaning here that that means that the feds like couldn't help you out because in those days transportation took much longer. Let's say a state's being attacked and the feds can't, the, the U.S. Army can't get over there. In this case. They're literally there. It's the opposite. Our founders could never have envisioned this. They're there, and they're helping the cartels. They're, they're coordinating with them to, to to streamline the invasion and cut Texas's border security. So we're not even taught. so a state like Texas is allowed to engage in war. So theoretically, they could have troops and missiles and ships and go into Mexico and attack the smugglers, and they would be backed by the Constitution. So we're not even talking about that. We're talking about a purely defensive measure of just having a barrier. So that is, they are 100% following the Constitution. So that's what the Texas legislature and governor are asserting, or should be asserting, that right. Okay. Um, Chief Justice Marshall said during the debate over the compact clause at the convention, he said... I'm sorry, not the convention. It would have been uh, the Virginia ratifying convention, um, June 16, 1788. This clearly proves that the states can use the militia when they find it necessary. So, again, this is using the militia. So, certainly, certainly um, – and, again, by the way, using the militia doesn't mean when t- states always call up the national their National Guard. That's internally. He's talking about externally, meaning invading Mexico. So they have, they have that on their side. In comes the courts and say no. So the, the federal executive branch and the federal judiciary are saying, no, Texas, you don't have that power. And you have to allow Border Patrol to engage in the invasion and help the invaders. Who is constitutionally correct? Okay, who is constitutionally correct? It's obvious. Again. A court does not have this power. They issue opinions. Everyone knows when you talk about this issue, Federalist 78. We always talk about Federalist 78. Hamilton said that courts are comparatively the weakest branch. They have neither force nor will. Force nor will. At the end of the day, they can't force it. Um, 11th Circuit Judge William Pryor, who, by the way, should have been the guy picked and he was not only on the list, but during one of the early debates, if you remember, he he name-dropped Diane Sykes. She was on the 7th or 6th. I can't remember. Um, sorry about that. She was on the 7th Circuit because she was from Wisconsin. And Judge William Pryor of Arkansas on the 11th Circuit. And... He he beautifully explained what what uh, Hamilton was saying with neither force nor will. Hamilton's point was that we must depend upon the persuasiveness of our written opinions to command the respect of our fellow citizens. In that way, we have the foremost responsibility of safeguarding our independence. Okay, and, and what this means is. Daniel, are you saying courts are just a bunch of nothing? No, when you have two individual citizens or individual corporations under the law, they rule supreme in terms of ruling on that. But whenever they're talking about the contours of the powers of branches of government, state and federal themselves, at the end of the day, they're co-equal independent branches. So if your opinion affects them, it's like you— you rely on the persuasiveness of your written word because, in fact, you have less power than the respective federal and state executive and legislative branches of government. The power of the purse, the power to execute the police force. Um, Lincoln's Attorney General, Edward Bates, said a similar thing during the whole crisis over uh, the writ of habeas corpus when uh, Lincoln suspended it in Maryland. He got, got a lot of bad, bad rap then. So the debate then was that the courts were trying to say... That even though the Constitution says you actually can suspend habeas corpus during a time of rebellion, so he should have been right. But they, they claimed it was Congress, that the executive branch didn't have that authority. So there was a disagreement over that. So who's right? Congress or the executive branch? So Edward Bates wrote a very lengthy letter to Congress. It's worth reading it if you have time. Just Google Attorney General Edward Bates letter to Congress, writ of habeas corpus, and it should come up. That is the sum of its judicial powers, ample and efficient for all the purposes of distributive justice among individual parties, but powerless to impose rules of action and of judgment upon the other departments. IBM v. um, IBM v. uh, Microsoft. Horowitz v. Days, right? Something like that. But Texas's you know Congress versus executive branch or you know Biden administration DHS versus T- Texas DPS y- you could offer an opinion on that or an order they didn't, they didn't offer an opinion it was, it was an order so it certainly wasn't very persuasive i mean it we we know we know the truth meaning in this case in this case not only do they have the constitution on their side so A lot of people might say, well, Daniel, okay, that's when they're on an equal playing field. That's, let's say, Congress versus the executive branch. But what about here, Texas? Don't they have to follow the supremacy clause? Okay. Where it says, famously, that, uh, you know, that the laws of the United States shall be supreme, right? But we forget that it says shall be supreme when it shall be made in pursuance thereof of the Constitution. Pursuance thereof. Because what it was expressing was constitutional supremacy, not judicial supremacy. And in this case, it's all the more so that it is the federal executive branch that is violating the laws of the United States. So I mean, not only do states, states certainly have the right to um ignore laws duly passed by congress by the way and signed by the president that are not pursuant to the constitution so let's say you know congress passed a law every every person has to wear a mask so states have an obligation to oppose that but in this case the immigration and nationality act duly passed by congress been in, en- en- enacted for many years prohibits the Biden administration from doing everything it's doing, and it does it anyway. They're violating both the law of the Feds and the Constitution. So how much more so? Madison said towards the end of his life, 1834, in a letter, "Each department must, in the exercise of its functions, be guided by the text of the Constitution according to its own interpretation in it." And, and Lincoln echoed that sentiment in his debate with Douglas. He famously said, "Look, Douglas, you believe." Um Dred Scott is correct, so you you have to abide by that you, you're you're it's it's binding on you. I believe it's wrong, so I have to follow the Constitution as I see fit. A lot of people forget before the end of his life it might have been his last public appearance. If not, it's like the second to last. You could Google it. Justice Scalia asked the audience rhetorically. Do you think the American people would ever have ratified the Constitution if they had been told the meaning of this document shall be whatever a majority of the Supreme Court says it is? And I would add, certainly when it's a lower court judge, think about that. Would you have ever ratified it if you were told that the meaning of the document and, and and again, it would have been bad enough at the time of the founding when they kind of agreed that it was a homogenous society, they weren't debauched. But now that we have, we can't agree on what a border is, what a woman is, what a criminal is. We can't agree on basic natural law. There's not a single thing we we don't disagree about. And not only that, anything the left disagrees with, they believe it's mandated by the Constitution. We have no choice. Choice, there is no moving beyond this issue. I warned about this a decade ago, and it's truer now. We will never succeed in anything if we don't slay the beast. And it's easy because you can't tell me, oh, we have this great Supreme Court, don't worry. It's better to, you know, benefit. And mind you, I'm a benefit of judicial supremacism. Every once in a while, you get a benefit from it where the political branches of government do something that's wrong, And the court steps in, in the case of blue state anti-carry laws. I'm in Maryland. I have my gun on my hip right now. I carry it because of the Bruin decision. Okay? Now, again, it's not because the court said so. It's, that is the Constitution. And the blue states kind of halfway accepted upon themselves. But they do push back sometimes. But I would forego that. I'd be willing to forego it. The once in a hundred that we win, that we use the courts to strike down blue state laws if we traded it for the red states doing what they want. Because in the long run, the blue states will do what they want. In the long run, if you are caught in a blue state long term, you, you will not be able to count on the courts. We saw that with COVID. They will screw you. So you may as well at least have some place where we could strive to fight for a political outcome that benefits our values. And not have judicial interference. Or at least if they do. We build a movement to fight it. If we could get Greg Abbott. To, stay, to hold the line on this issue. It will not just be a benefit. On this huge huge, uh, important issue. Of, of the invasion. But on so many other things. Like the trendy stuff. That we need to push back on. This is what substance looks like my friends. This is the sort of long term game. We need to play the 4D chess. This is what we need a movement for. Now point to me, which conservative leader is giving you this vision? Well, none. So if there's none, I need you guys to send this show in particular, this exposition of constitutional supremacism over judicial supremacism to every one of your friends, relatives, colleagues. They need to hear this. Give us a five-star rating if you like us on iTunes. If you could just leave a brief comment, it helps with the algorithms. If we get truth and knowledge out to the people they'll respond. But if we have all my colleagues being as blind as the blind, we're going to continue to get the same results. Hopefully we'll have some more guests on starting tomorrow. We'll go back to some of our regular programming. Till then, God bless you all, and thank you for listening.